Section 3 of Five Continental Op Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Slippery Fingers You are already familiar, of course, with the particulars of my father's, uh, death. The papers are full of it and have been for three days, I said. And I've read them, but I'll have to have the whole story firsthand. There isn't very much to tell. This Frederick Grover was a short, slender man of something under thirty years, and dressed like a picture out of Vanity Fair. His almost girlish features and voice did nothing to make him more impressive, but I began to forget these things after a few minutes. He wasn't a sap. I knew that downtown, where he was rapidly building up a large and lively business in stocks and bonds without calling for too much help from his father's millions, he was considered a shrewd article. And I wasn't surprised later when Benny Foreman, who ought to know, told me that Frederick Grover was the best poker player west of Chicago. He was a cool, well-balanced, quick-thinking little man. Father has lived here alone with the servants since mother's death two years ago, he went on. I am married, you know, and live in town. Last Saturday evening he dismissed Barton. Barton was his butler valet and had been with father for quite a few years at a little after nine, saying that he did not want to be disturbed during the evening. Father was here in the library at the time, looking through some papers. The servants' rooms are in the rear, and none of the servants seem to have heard anything during the night. At seven-thirty the following morning, Sunday, Barton found Father lying on the floor, just to the right of where you were sitting, dead, stabbed in the throat with a brass paper-knife that was always kept on the table here. The front door was ajar. The police found bloody fingerprints on the knife, the table, and the front door, but so far they have not found the man who left the prince, which is why I am employing your agency. The physician who came with the police placed the time of father's death at between eleven o'clock and midnight. Later, on Monday, we learned that father had drawn ten thousand dollars in hundred-dollar bills from the bank Saturday morning. No trace of the money has been found. My fingerprints, as well as the servants, were compared with the ones found by the police, but there was no similarity. I think that is all. Do you know of any enemies your father had? He shook his head. I know of none, although he may have had them. You see, I really didn't know my father very well. He was a very reticent man, and until his retirement about five years ago, he spent most of his time in South America, where most of his mining interests were. He may have had dozens of enemies, though Barton, who probably knew more about him than anyone, seems to know of no one who hated father enough to kill him. How about relatives? I was his heir and only child, if that is what you are getting at. So far as I know, he had no other living relatives. I'll talk to the servants, I said. The maid and the cook could tell me nothing, and I learned very little more from Barton. He had been with Henry Grover since 1912, had been with him in Yunnan, Peru, Mexico, and Central America, but apparently he knew little or nothing of his master's business or acquaintances. He said that Grover had not seemed excited or worried on the night of the murder, and that nearly every night Grover dismissed him at about the same time with orders that he not be disturbed. So no importance was to be attached to that part of it. 
He knew of no one with whom Grover had communicated during the day, and he had not seen the money Grover had drawn from the bank. I made a quick inspection of the house and grounds, not expecting to find anything, and I didn't. Half the jobs that come to a private detective were like this one. Three or four days, and often as many weeks, have passed since the crime was committed. The police work on the job until they are stumped. Then the injured party calls in a private sleuth, dumps him down on a trail that is old and cold and badly trampled, and expects, Oh, well, I picked out this way of making a living, so... I looked through Grover's papers. He had a safe and desk full of them, but didn't find anything to get excited about. They were mostly columns of figures. "'I'm going to set an accountant out here to go over your father's books,' I told Frederick Grover. "'Give him everything he asks for and fix it up with a bank so they'll help him.' I caught a streetcar and went back to town, called at Ned Root's office, and headed him out toward Grover's. Ned is a human adding machine with educated eyes, ears, and nose. He can spot a kink in a set of books farther than I can see the covers. Keep digging until you find something, Ned, and you can charge Grover whatever you like. Give me something to work on, quick. The murder had all the earmarks of one that had grown out of blackmail, though there was, there always is, a chance that it might have been something else. But it didn't look like the work of an enemy or burglar. Either of them would have packed his weapon with him, would not have trusted to finding it on the grounds. Of course, if Frederick Grover or one of the servants had killed Henry Grover, but the fingerprints said no. Just to play safe, I put in a few hours getting a line on Frederick. He had been at a ball on the night of the murder. He had never, so far as I could learn, quarreled with his father. His father was liberal with him, giving him everything he wanted. And Frederick was taking in more money in his brokerage office than he was spending. No motive for a murder appeared on the surface there. At the City Detective Bureau, I hunted up the police sleuths who had been assigned to the murder, Marty O'Hara and George Dean. It didn't take them long to tell me what they knew about it. Whoever had made the bloody fingerprints was not known to the police here. They had not found the prints in their files. The classifications had been broadcast to every large city in the country, but with no results so far. A house four blocks from Grover's had been robbed on the night of the murder, and there was a slim chance that the same man might have been responsible for both jobs. But the burglary had occurred after one o'clock in the morning, which made the connection look not so good. A burglar who had killed a man, and perhaps picked up $10,000 on the bargain, wouldn't be likely to turn his hand to another job right away. I looked at the paper knife with which Grover had been killed, and at the photographs of the bloody prints, but they couldn't help me much just now. There seemed to be nothing to do but get out and dig around until I turned up something somewhere. Then the door opened, and Joseph Klain was ushered into the room where O'Hara, Dean, and I were talking. Klain was a hard-bitten citizen for all his prosperous look, fifty or fifty-five, I'd say, with eyes, mouth, and jaw that held plenty of humor, but none of what is sometimes called the milk of human kindness. He was a big man, beefy, and all dressed up in a tight-fitting checkered suit, fawn-colored hat, patent leather shoes with buff uppers, and the rest of the things that go with that sort of combination. He had a harsh voice that was as empty of expression as his hard red face, and he held his body stiffly, as if he were afraid the buttons on his too tight clothes were about to pop off. Even his arms hung woodenly at his sides, with thick fingers that were lifelessly motionless. He came right to the point. 
He had been a friend of the murdered man's and thought that perhaps what he could tell us would be of value. He had met Henry Grover, he called him Henny, in 1894 in Ontario, where Grover was working a claim, the gold mine that had started the murdered man along the road to wealth. Klein had been employed by Grover as foreman, and the two men had become close friends. A man named Dennis Waldeman had a claim adjoining Grover's, and a dispute had arisen over their boundaries. The dispute ran on for some time, the men coming to blows once or twice. But finally Grover seems to have triumphed, for Waldeman suddenly left the country. Klein's idea was that if we could find Waldeman, we might find Grover's murderer, for considerable money had been involved in the dispute, and Waldeman was a, a mean cuss for a fact, and not likely to have forgotten his defeat. Klein and Grover had kept in touch with each other, corresponding or meeting at irregular intervals, but the murdered man had never said or written anything that would throw a light on his death. Klein, too, had given up mining, and now had a small string of racehorses which occupied all his time. He was in the city for a rest between racing meets, had arrived two days before the murder, but had been too busy with his own affairs, he had discharged his trainer and was trying to find another, to call upon his friend. Klein was staying at the Marquis Hotel and would be in the city for a week or ten days longer. "'How come you waited three days before coming to tell us all this?' Dean asked him. I wasn't no way sure I had ought to do it. I wasn't ever sure in my mind, but what maybe Henny done for that fellow Waldeman? He disappeared sudden-like, and I didn't want to do anything to dirty Henny's name. But finally I decided to do the right thing. And then there's another thing. You found some fingerprints in Henny's house, didn't you? The newspaper said so. We did. Well, I want you to take mine and match them up. I was out with a girl the night of the murder, he leered suddenly boastingly, all night. And she's a good girl, got a husband and lots of folks. But it wouldn't be a right to drag her into this to prove I wasn't in Henny's house when he was killed, in case you maybe think I killed him. So I thought maybe I'd come down here, tell you all about it, and get you to take my fingerprints and have it all over with. We went up to the identification bureau and had Klein's prints taken. They were not at all like the murderers. After we pumped Klein dry, I went out and sent a telegram to our Toronto office asking them to get a line on the Waldeman angle. Then I hunted up a couple of boys who eat, sleep, and breathe horse racing. They told me that Klein was well known in racing circles as the owner of a small string of near horses that ran as irregularly as the stewards would permit. At the Marquis Hotel I got hold of the house detective, who was a helpful chap so long as his hand is kept greased. He verified my information about Klein's status in the sporting world, and told me that Klein had stayed at the hotel for several days at a time, off and on, within the past couple of years. He tried to trace Klein's telephone calls for me, but as usual, when you want them, the records were jumbled. I arranged to have the girls on the switchboard listen in on any talking he did during the next few days. Ned Root was waiting for me when I got down to the office the next morning. He had worked on Grover's accounts all night, and had found enough to give me a start. Within the past year, that was as far back as Ned had gone, Grover had drawn out of his bank accounts nearly $50,000 that could not be accounted for, nearly 50000 exclusive of the 10000 he had drawn the day of the murder. Ned gave me the amounts and the dates. May 6, 1922, 15000 June 10, 5000 August 1, 5000 October 10, 10000 January 3, 1923, 12,500. 
$47,500. Somebody was getting fat off of him. The local managers of the telegraph companies raised the usual howl about respecting their patrons' privacy, but I got an order from the prosecuting attorney and put a clerk at work on the files of each office. Then I went back to the Marquis Hotel and looked at the old registers. Klain had been there from May 4th to 7th and from October 8th to 15th last year. That checked off two of the dates upon which Grover had made his withdrawals. I had to wait until nearly six o'clock for my information from the telegraph companies, but it was worth waiting for. On the 3rd of last January, Henry Grover had telegraphed $12,500 to Joseph Klain in San Diego. The clerks hadn't found anything on the other dates I had given them, but I wasn't at all dissatisfied. I had Joseph Klain fixed as the man who had been getting fat off Grover. I sent Dick Foley, he is the agency's shadow ace, and Bob Teal, a youngster who will be a world-beater some day, over to Klain's hotel. Plant yourselves in the lobby, I told him. I'll be over in a few minutes to talk to Klain, and I'll try to bring him down in the lobby where you can get a good look at him. Then I want him shadowed until he shows up at police headquarters tomorrow. I want to know where he goes and who he talks to. And if he spends much time talking to any one person, or if their conversation seems very important, I want one of you boys to trail the other man to see who he is and what he does. If Klain tries to blow town, grab him and have him thrown in the can. But I don't think he will. I gave Dick and Bob time enough to get themselves placed, and then went to the hotel. Klain was out, so I waited. He came in a little after eleven, and I went up to his room with him. I didn't ham and haw, but came out cold turkey. All the signs point to Grover's having been blackmailed. Do you know anything about it? No, he said. Grover drew a lot of money out of his banks at different times. You got some of it, I know, and I suppose you got most of it. What about it? He didn't pretend to be insulted or even surprised by my talk. He smiled a little grimly, maybe, but as if he thought it the most natural thing in the world, and it was, at that, for me to suspect him. I told you that me and Henny were pretty chummy, didn't I? We ought to know that all us fellows that fool with the bang tails have our streaks of bad luck. Whenever I'd got up against it, I'd hit Henny up for a stake, like at Tijuana last winter when I got into a flock of bad breaks. Henny lent me twelve or fifteen thousand, and I got back on my feet again. I've done that often. He ought to have some of my letters and wires in his stuff. If you look through his things, you'll find them. I didn't pretend that I believed him. Suppose you drop into police headquarters at nine in the morning, and we'll go over everything with the city dicks, I told him. I meant to make my place stronger. I wouldn't make it much later than nine. They might be out looking for you. Ah, uh -huh. was all the answer I got. I got back to the agency and planted myself within reach of a telephone, waiting for word from Dick and Bob. I thought I was sitting pretty. Klain had been blackmailing Grover. I didn't have a single doubt of that and I didn't think he'd have been very far away when Grover was killed. That woman alibi of his sounded all wrong. But the bloody fingerprints were not claims, unless the Police Identification Bureau had pulled an awful boner, and the man who had left the prints was the bird I was setting my cap for. Klain had let three days pass between the murder and his appearance at headquarters. The natural explanation for that would be that his partner, the actual murderer, had needed nearly that much time to put himself in the clear, my present game was simple. I had stirred Klain up with the knowledge that he was still suspected, hoping that he would have to repeat whatever precautions were necessary to protect his accomplice in the first place. He had taken three days then. 
I was giving him about nine hours now, time enough to do something, but not too much time, hoping that he would have to hurry things along, and that in his haste he would give Dick and Bob a chance to turn up his partner, the owner of the fingers that had smeared blood on the knife, the table, and the door. At a quarter to one in the morning, Dick telephoned that Klain had left the hotel a few minutes behind me, had gone to an apartment house on Polk Street, and was still there. I went up to Polk Street and joined Dick and Bob. They told me that Klain had gone in apartment number 27, and that the directory in the vestibule showed this apartment was occupied by George Farr. I stuck around with the boys until two o'clock when I went home for some sleep. At seven I was with him again, and was told that our man had not appeared yet. It was a little after eight when he came out and turned down Geary Street, with the boys trailing him, while I went into the apartment house for a talk with the manager. She told me that Farr had been living there for four or five months, lived alone, and was a photographer by trade, with a studio on Market Street. I went up and rang his bell. He was a husky of thirty or thirty-two, with bleary eyes that looked as if they hadn't had much sleep that night. I didn't waste any time with him. I'm from the Continental Detective Agency, and I am interested in Joseph Klein. What do you know about him? He was wide awake now. Nothing. Nothing at all? No, sullenly. Do you know him? No. What can you do with a bird like that? Far, I said. I want you to go down to headquarters with me. He moved like a streak, and his sullen manner had me a little off my guard. But I had turned my head in time to take the punch above my ear instead of on the chin. At that, it carried me off my feet, and I wouldn't have met a nickel that my skull wasn't dented, but luck was with me, and I fell across the doorway, holding the door open, and managed to scramble up, stumble through some rooms, and catch one of his feet as it was going through the bathroom window to join its mate on the fire escape. I got a split lip and a kicked shoulder in the scuffle, but he behaved after a while. I didn't stop to look at his stuff. That could be done more regularly later but put him in a taxicab and took him to the Hall of Justice. I was afraid that if I waited too long, Klain would take a run out on me. Klain's mouth fell open when he saw Farr, but neither of them said anything. I was feeling pretty chirp in spite of my bruises. Let's get this bird's fingerprints and get it over with, I said to O'Hara. Dean was not in. And keep an eye on Klain. I think maybe I'll have another story to tell us in a few minutes. We got in the elevator and took our men up to the identification bureau, where we put Farr's fingers on the pad. Fells, he's the department's expert, took one look at the results and turned to me. Well, what of it? What of what? I asked. This isn't the man who killed Henry Grover. Klain laughed. Farr laughed. O'Hara laughed. And Fells laughed. I didn't. I stood there and pretended to be thinking, trying to get myself in hand. Are you sure you haven't made a mistake? I blurted, my face a nice rosy red. You can tell how badly upset I was by that. It's plain suicide to say a thing like that to a fingerprint expert. Fells didn't answer. He just looked me up and down. Klain laughed again, like a crow cawing, and turned his ugly face to me. Do you want to take my prints again, Mr. Slick Private Detective? Yeah, I said. Just that. I had to say something. Klain held his hands out to Fells, who ignored them, speaking to me with heavy sarcasm. Better take them yourself this time, so you'll be sure it's done right. I was mad clean through. Of course it was my own fault. But I was pig-headed enough to go through with anything, particularly anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. So I said, 
That's not a bad idea. I'd walked over and took hold of one of Klein's hands. I'd never taken a fingerprint before, but I'd seen it done often enough to throw a bluff. I started to ink Klein's fingers and found that I was holding them wrong. My own fingers were in the way. Then I came back to earth. The balls of Klein's fingers were too smooth, or rather too slick, without the slight clinging feeling that belongs to flesh. I turned his hands over so fast I nearly upset him and looked at the fingers. I don't know what I expected to find, but I didn't find anything. Not anything that I could name. Fells, I called. Look here. He forgot his injured feelings and bent to look at Klain's hand. I'll be, he began. And then the two of us were busy for a few minutes, taking Klain down and sitting on him, while O'Hara quieted Farr, who had also gone suddenly into action. When things were peaceful again, Fells examined Klain's hands carefully, scratching the fingers with a fingernail. He jumped up, leaving me to hold Klain and paying no attention to my, What is it? Got a cloth and some liquid and washed the fingers thoroughly. We took his prints again. They matched the bloody ones taken from Grover's house. Then we all sat down and had a nice talk. I told you about the trouble Henny had with that fellow Waldeman. Klain began after he and Farr had decided to come clean. There was nothing else they could do. And how he won in the argument because Waldeman disappeared? Well, Henny done for him, shot him one night and buried him. And I saw it. Grover was one bad actor in them days, a tough hombre to tangle with, so I didn't try to make nothing out of what I knew. But after he got older and richer, he got soft. A lot of men go like that. Must have been worrying over it because when I ran into him in New York accidentally about four years ago, it didn't take me long to learn that he was pretty well tamed, and he told me that he hadn't been able to forget the look on Waldemann's face when he drilled him. So I took a chance and braced Henry for a couple thousand. I got them easy, and after that, whenever I was flat, I either went to him or sent him word, and he always came across. But I was careful not to crowd him too far. I knew what a terror he was in the old days. I didn't want to push him into busting loose again. But that's what I did in the end. I phoned him Friday that I needed money, and he said he'd call me and let me know where to meet him the next night. He called me up about half-past nine Saturday night and told me to come out to the house. So I went out there, and he was waiting for me on the porch and took me upstairs and gave me the 10000 I told him that this was the last time I'd ever bother him. I always told him that. It had a good effect on him. Naturally, I wanted to get away as soon as I had the money, but he must have felt sort of talkative for a change, because he kept me there for half an hour or so, gassing about men we used to know up in the province. After a while, I began to get nervous. He was getting a look in his eyes like he used to have when he was young. And then all of a sudden, he flared up and tied into me. He had me by the throat and was bending me back across the table when my hand touched that brass knife. It was either me or him. So I let him have it where it could do the most good. I beat it then and went back to the hotel. Newspapers were all full of it next day, had a whole lot of stuff about bloody fingerprints. That gave me a jolt. I didn't know nothing about fingerprints, and there I'd left them all over the dump. And then I got to worrying over the whole thing, and it seemed like Henny must have had my name written down somewhere as among his papers, and maybe had saved some of my letters or telegrams, though they were written in careful enough language. Anyway, I figured the police would want to be asking me some questions sooner or later. There I'd be with fingers that fit the bloody prints, and nothing for what Farr calls an alibi. That's when I thought of Farr. 
I had his address, and I knew he'd been a fingerprint sharp at the East, so I decided to take a chance on him. I went to him and told him the whole story, and between us we figured out what to do. He said he'd dope my fingers, and I was to come here and tell the story we'd fixed up and have my fingerprints taken, and then I'd be safe no matter what leaked out about me and Henny. So he smeared up the fingers and told me to be careful not to shake hands with anybody or touch anything, and I came down here and everything went like three of a kind. Then that little fat guy, meaning me, came around to the hotel last night and as good as told me that he thought I had done for Henny and that I'd better come down here this morning. I beat it for Fars right away to see whether I had to run for it or sit tight, and Fars said sit tight. So I stayed there all night, and he fixed up my hands this morning. That's my yarn. Fells turned to Far. I've seen fake prints before, but never any this good. How'd you do it? These scientific birds are funny. Here was Far looking a nice long stretch in the face as accessory after the fact, and yet he brightened up under the admiration in Fell's tone and answered with a voice that was chock full of pride. It's simple. I got hold of a man whose prints I knew weren't in any police gallery. I didn't want any slip up there, and took his prints and put them on a copper plate using the ordinary photo-engraving process, but etching it pretty deep. Then I coated Plain's fingers with gelatin, just enough to cover all his markings, and pressed them against the plates. That way I got everything, even to the pores, and... When I left the bureau ten minutes later, Farr and Fells were still sitting, knee to knee, jabbering away at each other as only a couple of birds who are cuckoo on the same subject can. End of Slippery Fingers